Uh, we started this series just a few weeks ago at the beginning of June. We're looking at Samson, the flawed fighter. And we've seen that he is a Hall of Famer for faith. He is in Hebrews chapter 11. But he is a man who is a product also of his environment. And one of the themes that we see within Judges is that every man did what was right in his own eyes. And we see this is, is indicative of Samson as well. Though he was a man of God, though he was consecrated to do God's will, he continually gave himself over to his sinful appetites and then suffered the consequences of them. And his life is, is laid forth for us as a means of, of challenging and inspiring us, but also as a warning as to what can happen to us if we indulge in our sinful appetites. That God may use us still, but how much more could have been accomplished through Samson had he done what God wanted him to do? And we, we've seen his life, we've seen uh, in the last few weeks, we saw a lot about him and, and just seeing how he had continually, as we see in, in our text last week, he went down and he went down. It was not just talking about a geographical location of where he lived. He lived on the Israeli-Philistine border and he would go down to the Philistines and he was interacting and having close, intimate relationships with these unbelievers that God had told him at the time not to do. And he intermarries with them and he, and he refuses to listen to to God's authority. He refuses to listen to his parents' authority. And he wants, as Woody Allen said, he wants what the heart wants. He didn't care about what happened. And yet God still used him. And he's this flawed fighter. And I think he's somebody that each of us can, can uh, kind of identify with. I mean, not completely with his circumstances, but the idea of wrestling with our sinful passions and what will happen with us. What will happen? Will God still use us? It's not an excuse to stay in him. It's, it's a means of, of warning us so that we might forsake that way because we know that God might see us in the midst of that and that he, might, he still will use us because we have this tendency to say, I'm going to go my own way, God. I don't care. And God's gonna, God says to us, you know, I, I'm going to let you go your own way, but I'm still going to work my purposes out through you. You're just not going to receive the blessing of it. And even that I'm going to use for my glory, even though it's going to be painful as you continue on. But I'm going to show you, I'm going to work my will out through you. Now we see as he's doing this, he, he uh, proposes a riddle, just a means of review, as he's at his wedding ceremony, and, uh, or his feast that's going on, this wedding feast that it took about a week to celebrate in the ancient world. And he proposes a riddle to these companions that are given to him, kind of like, his, like the, the groomsman, if you will. And he proposes this riddle to them, and, it, and it's a trick question, really, because he uh, talks about how he had killed this lion, and then he had gone back to see this lion, and in the carcass is this honey. And he reaches in and he grabs it, and in the riddle he says, can you answer this to me out of this fighter, something to eat, uh, out of the, this, this figure, I'm not going through all of it, but something sweet. And they are frustrated at it because they can't figure it out. Finally, they pressure his wife. And she presses him. He finally tells her he can't take it any longer. And then he, she goes and tells them, and then he reports, they report back to him. We figured out your riddle, and now you have to answer. You have to give us these 30 changes of clothing, uh, actually more like 60 because it was an outer and inner garment as well. So he goes off, kills 30 Philistines, comes back and brings it to them, and he's ticked off. He's angry because he feels betrayed. You ever been betrayed before? You had someone that had done something wrong to you, maybe not betrayed you, but just done something wrong to you that you felt was unjustified, and what was your response? Did you want to get revenge? How many of you, how many of us in this room, just as a means of a survey, have ever secretly plotted revenge in your mind? Wow, I'm scared now. <laughs> you guys are much worse than I thought. 
Uh, but it's true. We plot revenge in our mind. I mean, I, I'm sure many of us go through elaborate plans on what we're going to do. We want vengeance, right? Someone wrongs us, humiliates us, we plot. That's what Samson did. Samson leaves, leaves his bride, in essence takes off. He was supposed to be there for the honeymoon. I mean, in Deuteronomy, it even talks about how young soldiers would be exempt from military service for a year so they could do- devote it to them, their wives. But Samson just, he's so angry at her. He's angry at the situation. He's humiliated. He's frustrated that he leaves. He leaves and he goes off. And when he comes back, he encounters a situation that is just his, almost his worst nightmare. And I want us to jump right into that in verse 15, or verse 1 of chapter 15. Now, before we get into that, I want to pray and ask for God's blessing on us because I want us to see uh, how, so we don't follow through in the way that Samson did. We might avoid the mistakes that he made, and we might follow God's path, and we might experience bless, the blessing of being obedient to him. But before we go further, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come into your presence, and we are so grateful for your word, that your word speaks to the entirety of our human condition. Lord, we know that we are sinners by nature and by choice. And that, Lord, you have you've seen that and you put forth your Son to be a propitiation, to be our substitute, to take the wrath of God upon us. That your blood shed forth to cover our sins, to change our sinful hearts as the Spirit of God is birthing the Son of God within us and conforming us and transforming us into the image of Christ. So, Lord, today I pray that we might lay our weapons of rebellion down or our, our hurts and our bitterness of those who have wronged us, and we might lay them at your feet and that you might speak truth to our hearts and we might go forth changed for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's jump right in and walk through this very interesting text. So Samson is returning in verse 1. After some days, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. Now, during the ancient world, a wheat harvest was a time of celebration. Today, we're not a farming uh, or, a, or an agricultural community as such, but if you're from a smaller town, the harvest coming in is a big deal, especially in the ancient world, because it's not just for the farmers. I mean, I grew up in a family where my grandfather was a farmer. The harvest time was a great time, a great time of celebration. It was exhausting, but it was, it was a wonderful time. Now, in the ancient world, it was even bigger because the harvest wasn't just for you and your family, but it was for the entire community, meaning that you would have food for the duration of the winter. And it was a time of great celebration. Matter of fact, we see that one of the celebrations that Israel, ancient Israel, was to, to celebrate was the, the wheat harvest. They were to come together and have a party. And we see that during times like this, that God would say for it, it was how he showed his blessing on a people by bringing in these great harvests, and then what often was done is that the Israelites would party and then multiply, if you get my meaning. They would reproduce. It was a time of celebration, and it would show that God's hand was on the covenant community. And we see Samson showing up with a young goat as an offering to her, to his wife, and he wants to go into the bridal chamber. Now, the bridal chamber was not a place where any man could go. It was only for the husband to go to. And Samson's ready to see his wife. He's, he's calmed down a little bit from his anger. Some time has subsided. We don't know exactly how much. But time has subsided, and he comes back to see his wife. And literally, right before he gets ready to walk in the door, father shows up. He goes, ho, 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 ho. Uh, Samson, we have, we have something we have to talk about. Um, yeah. 
I mean, can you imagine being the dad here? When you left, and in the ancient world, um, when a person would say, I hate you, it was sometimes considered to be a form of divorce. And so he's like, um, I really thought that you hated her, so I gave her to your best man. Can you imagine the, the, the enraged feeling that was going on with Samson? Now, in some ways, Samson set this whole thing up. Now, granted, he didn't do this, but it was his choices and his decisions which have led to this. And now he's really enraged. He's enraged. Look at verse 2. Actually, verse 3. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Now, remember, he just harmed them before. So now he's saying, This time I'm innocent. Before I wasn't. But this time I'm going to be innocent. In other words, you hurt me, I hurt you. But see, this is, this is a ramification of the original choices he made. This is a consequence for him running off in anger. There was misunderstanding. See, when we, when we deal with certain things, we have this tendency to fight fire with fire. If someone wrongs us, we want to wrong them back. Remember the story of the Hatfield and the McCoys? Remember that story? It's ingrained in the American psyche. For those who aren't born in the United States or, or weren't from here, it's engraved. It started off in the Kentucky-West Virginia border. Some, nothing good ever happens on the Kentucky-West Virginia in that area. Sorry for those who are from there, but nothing good happens very often in those locations. And uh, what happens is, is that these two families are frustrated with one another, and it starts off with one family member who wanted to fight for the Union Army. And that frustrated everybody around him. And he ends up getting uh, discharged from the army because of a broken leg. And other people felt that he had betrayed the South. So they go after him and they kill him. And there's a little bit of resentment there. Although most of his family said, yeah, he betrayed, betrayed the South. So he uh, kind of deserves that. But you could feel that was underlying in them. And it, and it continued on. And these family relations continued on for several years until, of all things, a hog got in between them. And two members of the families agree, disagreed. One said, this is my hog. Look at him. Uh, he's in my possession. And the guy goes, it's got the markings of my family on it. So they go for an arbitrator. And one of the arbitrators says, no, it's for this family. And that enrages them. And they start doing wrong to one another. Ends up, years pass, fighting ensues. And I think 12 people are killed over this. And it's become a metonym in our culture for revenge. Revenge. What happens when we take matters into our own hands? What happens when we are wronged? We're going to do to them what they did to us. And that's what we see Samson doing. You did this to me, I'm going to do it to you. They come back even harder. And he does something even bigger than before. But we have to understand and go back to the source. What happened? And it's a ramification of his first choice. And that's the first point I want us to write, it, to write down. We're not to fight fire with fire, but we're to fight fire with faith. Fight fire with faith. And what does that mean? Fighting fire with faith requires us facing the unexpected ramifications of our choices. If we're going to really respond in faith, which Samson did not in these instances, I mean, he is a man of faith, but in these instances, he's not responding in faith. And again, his life is a warning to us. We have to face the unexpected ramifications of our choices. First of all, we have to face a broken heart. A broken heart. Samson shows up, and it's the woman that he loves, even though it was an illicit relationship. He placed his heart, and he loved this woman. He cared for her, and yet what happened? I gave her to another guy. Sorry. 
And he's broken. He's broken. You know, it's amazing to me that God will allow us to choose our own sinful way and we'll love something and care for it deeply and and go after it with all of our heart. But at the end of the day, we're going to suffer the consequences of choosing something other than God. And it's going to break our hearts. That's, I've seen it time and time again, especially with people that say, I'm going to marry or date this unbeliever, and I don't care what you say. And they go off, and their heart is broken, and it hurts in their marriage, it hurts in their children, it hurts themselves, and they re- recognize, I, I missed it. I missed it. And they feel this broken heart. See, God will give us over to our choices, but no, when we do so, we're going to have a broken heart. Now notice, we also face the possibility of being betrayed by others. Betrayed by others. The father shows up, then the father should have been the one going, hey, love your husband, show up, take care. I mean, he's being betrayed. He gives them over. I mean, his father-in-law had given him to his best man. It's betrayal. It's complete painful. It really hurt Samson. So he has a broken heart, and he has betrayal. We also find bargaining. Bargaining. Notice what his father-in-law tries to do. He tries to give him his younger daughter. It's a little bit like Jacob uh, with Rachel and Leah, but Samson would have none none of it. And when we go against God's revealed will to fulfill our own sinful desires, we may find that we don't get what we wanted, that others will try and negotiate or bargain with us, and rarely do we get what the devil promises us or what our sinful desires want from us. Now, one thing is for sure, in Samson's case, there was wrong done. Yes, it began with his bad decisions, and what we do, though, what do we do when we are wronged? How do we respond? What do we do? Do we take matters into our own hands? See, that's what Samson did, but that's not what God wants. Now, God used that in spite of himself, but it's interesting that Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35 is quoted in Romans 12, 19, and I want to share this verse with you. It's on page 948 in your pew Bible, so look up Romans 12, 19. Again, this is a quote from Deuteronomy 32 that Samson should have known, but he instead didn't do. It's on page 948 in your pew Bible. Romans 12, 19, the Holy Spirit through Paul, writing to the church at Rome, says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So what does that mean for us? It means we need to be refusing to take revenge wrongs done to us, refusing to take revenge. Now, I know that this is hard. It's extremely hard for every one of us. We want revenge. We want God to act in our time, but God's timetable is different than our own. See, revenge is poisonous and satisfies no one, not even the one who, who, not even the one who does it. See, we can see through Samson that revenge is engrossing. Revenge is engrossing. Look at verse 4. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. Okay, this isn't just something you go on a whim. He's plotting. He's thinking. This is the time where he should have been figuring out how to get his wife back. See, David had his wife, Michael, given away. That's later on. And he ends up getting her back later. But Samson doesn't try to do that. Instead, he plots revenge. It's engrossing. Verse 5, And when he had set fire to the torches... 
he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the sacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Think about how much time was spent in doing this. And then he had to catch 300 of these foxes or jackals. The Hebrew is not as specific, but it's this common animal that was known within Israel. It was found around. So it took him a while, though, to catch 300 of them. So it's an engrossing thing that he's done. Now, I think of revenge, I can't help but think probably one of the greatest books of revenge by Alexander Dumas, and it's uh, The Count of Monte Cristo. Anybody read the book? Okay, how about seeing the movie? Yeah, there we go. In it, it's about this guy who was wronged as a young man. He was wronged as a young man. He put in prison in the Chateau d'If, and I believe he was put in there for 14 years. And during that period of time, he plots his revenge, and he manages to escape and gets this huge fortune and then spends the next decade slowly, methodically going after the people that had wronged him. I mean, elaborate plots to do so. Now, the book really glorifies the end result, but we see within Scripture, when we do that, it's not so glorified. It is engrossing to us, and it can really tear us apart, can alienate us from other people as well. So it's not just engrossing, but it's expensive. It's expensive. Look at verse 5. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines. This is their cash crop now. This is a lot of money. He's going after the standing grain. He doesn't care. And then then sets fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. This is their, their means of income. This is their money. This is economic. He doesn't care. He's going after it because of how much they hurt him. I mean, think about how the extent this plot is. And he's not just hurting the, the, his uh, father-in-law. He's hurting all of the Philistines, the entire community. It is extremely expensive, and it always causes further escalation. Further escalation. I mean, I think about this. We can look at this in any different country where it's had different conflict, the IRA and, and uh, Northern Ireland, or the Palestinian and Jewish situation in Israel, or you could even see it sometimes uh, in history with the Pakistanis in India. I mean, there's, there's all of these different things that are going on. It always results in further and greater escalation to all of the parties involved. It reminds me of a, a, a joke I once heard about a a Jewish man who was walking the streets of Dublin. And a guy grabbed him in a back alley and put a knife to his throat. And he says, actually, he's not even Jewish. He's just a guy. But he's walking in, in this uh, back, and the guy grabs him in the back alley, and he puts a knife to his throat. And he goes, what are you, Catholic or Protestant? The guy goes, well, if I say Catholic, he could be Protestant. He could kill me. If I say Protestant, and he's Catholic, he could kill me. So he comes up and the guy goes, laughs. He goes, I'm the luckiest Arab in all of Ireland. <laughs> see, it, but it's the idea of still revenge. And we see that it doesn't just stay geographically. It goes across the waters. And, and, and it stays and it's harbored. And it always results in further escalation. It reminds me of uh, the Untouchables where you had uh, Kevin, uh, Kevin Costner talking to Sean Connery's character. And he goes, he puts one of yours in the hospital. You put one of his in the morgue. It's the Chicago way. It's this picture of this escalation of violence that goes on when we seek to take revenge on others. Now, if we give in to it, we have to be 
prepared. Because we are warned that if we do take revenge, that we must make sure that we're preparing for retaliation. Preparing for retaliation. Look at verse 6. The Philistines inquire and they say, and he said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Remember, that was the threat earlier. That was the threat. That if she wouldn't reveal to them the answer to the riddle, they were going to burn him. Now they, do, they, go, they fall. I mean, this is a barbaric place. And they're, they're saying, it's your fault we're in this mess. We're, gonna, we're killing you. I mean, this, is, this is how bad it had become within ancient Israel. I mean, really, Judges is a, is a period of this very barbaric time where people are giving over to their simple desires and, again, becoming laws and authorities unto themselves. And that's what we see going a lot in our own culture today. Everybody says, what's, what's good for you or what's good for me? If it feels good, do it. I'm the one who determines right and wrong. You can't tell me how to live. Who are you to tell me how to live? Everyone becomes their own authority. Not what was going on. That what was that's what was going on in ancient Israel as well. And they came up, they burned her and her father with fire, and Samson said, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. Now he's making a deal. He's bargaining, going, I'm gonna get him one more time and then I'm gonna quit. Does he quit? He continues on. And then he struck them hip and thigh, meaning that he comes after them and he destroys them with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Edom. Now, what do you think happens next? They're going to respond. See, it's escalating. Look at verse 9. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We've come up to bind Samson to do to him as what? He did to us. He did to us. So we will find that their retaliation, when others retaliate, it's going to uh, cause a lot of different ramifications. First of all, we see that when they retaliate, it's going to hurt our family. It hurts our family. And another unintended consequence. I mean, they came after, so he did to them, they hurt, they took out his wife and father, his father-in-law. It hurts our family. See, I've seen that. When, when people go after one person, who do they go after next? If they can't get to them, who do they go after? The children. Satan can't get to, to, to God himself, so who does he go after? God's kids. He comes after us. It's part of his MO. We even see that in the book of Job. When, when Satan goes after Job, first thing that he does, takes out his family. He goes after his family, and then he hits his business, his career, and then he hits his health. He's still doing that today. He can't get to you. He will, I mean, he, he's going to get to you through your family, through your job, or he's going to get to you through your own physical health. And we see that's what's going on. They go after and hurt his family. And then a, a product of that is that it's going to produce fear. It produces fear. Look at verse 11. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock at Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know... Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? I mean, the Philistines had come up, and now you have 3,000 men, and they're afraid. This is a huge party, and yet they're fearful of the Philistines now because of their wrath. It's going to produce fear. When we see such actions like that, it produces fear in other people, and it makes people weak. 
And when fear comes in, it cripples a people, and then it results in them making foolish choices. Making foolish choices. Look at verse 11. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I did to them. Remember, we just had seen that. They had, they, they had said, he had done to us, we're going to do to him as he did to us. Now he's saying, fighting fire with fire, not faith. And, he, and they say to him, we've come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. So they're making a, a fearful choice. They're giving this judge whom God has shown for to have the power of God on, and they're so afraid they're giving him over. This is a foolish choice on their part, to give him over in that way. And so he says, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. They wanted to turn Samson in, bind him and give him over to the Philistines. Now how many of us have made foolish choices based on fear? Have you ever done that? I have. I remember one of the greatest, probably, choices of fear that I had one time in front of me. I had a young couple. I was a brand new pastor. Uh, I was young, and a, the young lady was a friend of mine. And she had gone through a really tough time when she was a student at Moody. She had uh, been diagnosed with an illness. She'd had a bad breakup in a relationship because the parents of the, the young man didn't like her. So she was in this downward spiral, and she meets this young guy at a place that she worked at. It was Banana Republic on Michigan Avenue. And he was really fun to talk to for her, but he wasn't a believer. And her friends came alongside her, and they said, please, you got to watch the relationship with this guy. I mean, it's great you're talking, but you shouldn't be dating him. And she's like, I'm going to date him anyway. And, of course, what happened, the young couple comes together like that, and she ends up getting pregnant. Her very first time having any type of relation at all. And so they're sitting in front of me at this uh, Greek restaurant downtown, and they're telling me they, they want to get married. And so I'm, I'm faced with a decision. I'm like, he's not a believer. And, and she starts crying in the middle of this restaurant for all to see. And, and now she's like, we, we need to get married. I said, why do you need to get married? She goes, because we need his insurance to pay for the baby. I'm like, well, this is a foolish choice. You're only looking at the short term. There's something greater that needs to happen here. And yet he, he, he said, I've, I've confessed Christ as Savior, and I reluctantly agreed to marry them. And they, I think they would have gotten married no matter what I did. But... They got married, and it's, you know, now they've been divorced. Uh, the marriage escalated. It got worse. It got worse. She never had that commonality with them. It was because of a foolish choice that she had made, and she was fearful. And now there's, there were three children. It's a broken family. It's, and we do that. We make fearful choices. We, we only look at the short term. And we can't think greater that God will work it through us, and we're afraid that God's going to take it away. We're, we're afraid that it's not going to work out. We're so afraid of the future. And God is saying, no, 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 trust in me. Don't make foolish choices based on fear. Rely on me. See, when we take revenge into our own hands, we must understand that it jeopardizes our future. It jeopardizes our future. Now, with Samson, though they gave him in, it was... Uh, it, again, was a consequence of all of the other choices that he made, and he thought he was going to be killed. Now, God supernaturally delivered him, but for many of us, I mean, we have to understand that when we do this, we are jeopardizing our future.
future when we continue on. It's like, it's like Back to the Future. Remember that movie? Back to the Future. I, I still, one of my favorite parts of that is the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. Right? When Marty McFly's playing the, the guitar and he's got his picture of his family on there, and the more that he plays, he sees, because the longer he stays in this time and his parents don't come together, his future is fading in front of him. See, when we continue on in our sin and our idols and, and when we continue on trying to seek revenge, we're jeopardizing our future slowly. But God will, will remove that favor from us. We are jeopardizing our future. Instead, we must adhere to the words of Hebrews chapter 10. I, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. It's on page 1007, 1000, uh, maybe 948. I think I have 1007. I have two different numbers there. Sorry for the confusion. Um, It's one of those two. I don't have it in front of me. Does someone have it? Tell me which one it is. Okay, it depends on the Bible. What's the small print one? 948 is the small print one. Sorry for the the, uh, difficulty there, the confusion. But look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. Spirit writes... How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See, we need to understand that all of judgment is ultimately in the hands of God. All of vengeance is his. It was decided and determined at the cross of Christ. It showed God's greatness of judgment and the precursor of the judgment that is to ultimately come. He displayed his justice by offering Jesus as our sacrifice and substitute. He died for our sins and showed forth the entirety and fullness of his justice. And knowing that we have been forgiven, we have to now forgive others and give them over to God. So, in light of that, we should endeavor to be trusting in God's provision or God's response. God's response. That God will respond in His time. Again, God does it in His time. And we think that God's not paying attention and God doesn't know what's going on. So we try to respond ourselves. God will act on behalf of His people. The Spirit of God rushes upon Him and it came upon Him mightily. And while Samson didn't act in accordance with God's word initially, God still acted to accomplish his, pur- his purpose in spite of him. Look at verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire. And his bonds melted off of his hands, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, meaning it wasn't brittle that was going to break, and put out his hand and took it. And with it he struck down 1,000 men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. See, God provided and responded by cloaking and by clothing him or rushing upon him with the Spirit of God. And we need to trust he will work on our behalf as well. God will act on our behalf. Just as Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, and that's on page 871. Um, Luke chapter 12, I want you to see this, is that even in the midst of difficulty, God will work on behalf of his people. But in Luke chapter 12, uh, we read this. This is Jesus speaking, 
And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, granted, he's referring to being in front of the synagogues and and this missive persecution that's there, but I think there's a general principle to understand that God will provide and act on behalf of his people. And this is the sterling example of that. Now, what does that mean? It means trusting in him to be intervening in our problems. Trusting in him to be intervening in our problems, even when our problems are the result of our poor choices. God will still act on his behalf. But I think many of us are a little bit like that song from the movie 1776. Is anybody there? Does anybody care? But God is there. He is listening. He knows our situation. He knows our pain. He knows our problems. And he knows that no problem is too big for him. The problem that we have is when we make our problems bigger than God. Now, what are you dealing with right now? I mean, it could be a revenge situation, but I think there's a great old principle as well. We see that he is in the midst of our pain and our problems. I mean, where do you need God's intervention right now? Now, I've seen this in my own life. Because of my own choices, God still acted on my behalf. I, I've shared this story several years ago, but, uh, a few years ago, but I, I bear sharing again. In, uh, I used to pastor in the city of Chicago. Joel, uh, who's here, Joel Bedall, good friend of mine here, remembers all of these. This, this was going on, and I was really dealing with a situation where I felt that God was calling me to live where, leave where I was at and go on to full-time school, as well as pastor a church someplace. I didn't know where, and I didn't know how. And uh, I, I finally found out a school in New England, and it ended up being Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. I told the church that I was leaving. I had no money, uh, didn't know how I was going to afford it. I just felt I needed faith. And during that period of time, as I'm getting ready to move, uh, I receive a money order in the mail. And it, it's to me, it's not signed by anyone. It just says, pay to the order of Travis Fleming, $1,500. I was overjoyed. I was going to have money to go to seminary. And I, I got that right before I was supposed to go meet with my, uh, travel down to see my wife's family in Florida. So I, I put it on the, the, the table and, and left. And we came back, and when we came back, we were in a rush. We had to, to move very quickly. So we were throwing things away. We are packing things as quickly as possible and thinking, oh, I got that check. And when we get to New England, I have no money. And I'm like, well, it's time to deposit that check. And I looked for the check, and I had thrown it away. I threw a $1,500 check away. This is why you don't hand me paper, by the way. Don't ever hand me paper. I threw a $1,500 check away, and I was sick to my stomach because I needed that money. And I felt like I had spit in the face of God. So we contacted the church we were serving at. We had told people there. We said, hey, uh, whoever it was was so generous, can you be generous again? We lost your money. (laughs) Of course, no one responded. Nothing happened. So we went on. God provided in the midst of that. Lo and behold, two and a half years passes. We feel God, I, I, I sense God, I think I sense God leading me on to go to further schooling. I think I was presuming upon God, though. I wanted what I wanted. I wanted a bigger degree. and I wanted more uh, position. And so I, God, it seemed like he was leading us to, to uh, school back here in Deerfield. And uh, I, I went to, back to my home church and uh, connected with some people. And they said, where are you going to go to church? And I said, I didn't know. And they said, well, since it's an hour north, we know of a church up there called Chain of Lakes Community Bible Church. And Luke and Katie Gamal uh, attended there for many, many years. And uh, I said, okay. We went there to the church finally. And uh, after several months, after a few months of getting adjusted and trying to find a church, nothing worked. We ended up being there. I had no money again. All the money that I had presumed upon God to get, which was school loan money, had run out. 
I, again, I, I'm sure that I had presumed upon God here. And so here I'm facing this crisis situation. I don't have any money to pay my rent. And we had rented a town home uh, in my arrogance. Uh, I thought I needed a bigger house. And so I had this, I, my rent was $1,450. It's really expensive, especially for a graduate school student. So we went to church, and I'm trying to figure out what to do. And I'm, I, I sit down with my family. We're late to the service. Ever been late to a service? You better all raise your hand. Okay. Walked in late to the service, and it had wooden floor. I had two daughters at the time. My daughter brought her markers in, and we sit down, and the, the pastor is praying. And, of course, during that time, my daughter opens up her markers, and it spills all over the floor. And the whole place hears it and turns around and looks at us. Talk about being mortified. But there was a guy right in front of me, and he looked at me, and I looked at him, and I thought, man, you look familiar to me. And after the service, I told my wife, I said, I think that guy was at our church in Chicago one time. But I didn't think much of it. And, and the next uh, Sunday, we were visiting some friends in Galena, and I get back, and I'm, my rent is due. Then um, It's, it's uh, Wednesday night, uh, Thursday night, actually. And uh, Monday, my rent is due, and I don't have any money. And I, I get home uh, late, and my wife hands me this. We're going to go look at Christmas lights, and she hands me this letter. And it says, Dear Travis, in the fall of 2004, I found myself at a church in the inner city of Chicago, and I heard about a young man, a Moody grad, I believe, who uh, was going off to Boston to go to seminary, but he had a financial crisis. And God laid it upon my heart to give to this young man. So I went to, um, went to Lake Villa at a bank in Route 83, and I got a money order. I don't remember how much it was for, but I just knew I was supposed to get it for this young man. While I'm in the, the bank, I start feeling my heart. I, uh, I start feeling pains in my chest. And he goes out to the car, and he realizes that he's having a full-blown heart attack. And he, he's like, I'm going to die. And so he looks over at this letter that he's supposed to mail to me, and he says, Lord, uh, you told me to help this young man. I'm going to die. And he goes, you're not going to die. Do it, mail the letter, and it will be okay. So he goes, I mail the letter. He falls down by the, the, the uh, post, what is that thing? Mailbox. Duh. <laughs> Seminary worked for me. And the mailbox, and he's crawling as the paramedics are coming to him. They, they put him in, the, you know, they put him in the, the ambulance. They take him to the hospital, and they said, you're going to die. You have, the, you have a, what's called a widowmaker. Do you need us to call a priest or a pastor? And he goes, no, God told me I'm not going to die today. Do what you need to do. And he goes, imagine my surprise. He goes, I'm, I'm, um, he goes I'm, I'm still here today. God is still using me, even though I have half a heart. But imagine my surprise when the pastor I held two and a half years ago, I find a far cry from Boston. And when I saw you, God told me to write this letter to you. Um, maybe it helps, maybe it doesn't. Sincerely, a brother in Christ. Okay, now he doesn't know that I never cashed this money order. So I get this letter and I'm like, ah! it's another reminder I lost $1,500. And, and we go out to look at Christmas lights that night and I was not a happy camper. So my wife's like, look at the lights. I'm like, I hate lights. I hate I hate life right now. Isn't it beautiful, Daddy? No. I'm just miserable with myself. The next morning, I'm getting up, and I'm sitting here going, that could have taken care of my rent, and I'm meditating, and um, I keep thinking of details in this letter. Route 83, Lake Villa. Route 83, Lake Villa. So I decided to talk to my wife, and I say, honey, I don't know if this is going to help, but I'm just going to take this letter, and I'm going to get in the van, and I'm going to drive the Route 83 to Lake Villa, and I'm going to pull over at the very first bank I see, and I'm going to walk in with this letter. And I don't know if I can cash this check. I don't know I don't know if it's the bank. I don't know if it's any good. I just feel like I'm supposed to go. So I get in my, my, my van, 
And I drive there, and I literally see the sign for Lake Villa, and I see a bank, and I pull right in the parking lot. And I walk up with this letter in my hand. And I walk up to them, and I said, can you help me? And she's like, maybe. I said, well, I have a letter here. And uh, I tell her the story, and she's looking at me like I'm all kinds of crazy. And she goes, I'm going to direct you to a senior associate, which is a better way of going, I don't want to deal with you. <laughs> so she takes me to the senior associate, sits down, and I said, uh, when was this bank built? And she goes, in the fall of 2004. So I'm in my head, I'm going, fits the time frame. And I tell her the story. She goes, we may not, we weren't in business very long then. I said, well, how many banks are on Route 83 in Lake Villa? She said, eight. And I said, well, this is my first stop. And, and she, I tell her the story, and I said, I don't know if a money order is good for very long. I know a check's only good for six months. And she goes, a money order is good for six years. I'm like, really? And she goes, well, who wrote the check? I'm like, no clue. And she goes, well, who's it to? Me. <laughs> I even have a foreign, I mean, my, my license was Massachusetts at the time. And I said, here's my identification. I'm a pastor and all of these things. And she goes, well, let me check. She goes, how much was it for? I said, $1,500. I said, it could have been $1,450. I only saw it once. And she goes, um, are you sure? It wasn't more than that. I'm like, I'm positive. And she looks at the check, and she goes, oh, my gosh, we have the check. Now, see, God provided for my rent two and a half years before I needed it. God knew that I was going to move from Chicago to New England. This guy had showed up in the church in Chicago one time, and he was living in the northern suburbs. He had no clue that I never cashed this check, but God told him, to help me with this. I'd moved to New England, then moved back, go to that church, have my daughter spill her marker, markers in the middle of that service, have him see me, God tell him to write me that letter. That God would provide my rent. Right then and there, I sat and cried in the middle of that bank, and I said, you can't tell me there's not a God. And I remember sharing with a seminary friend, I was so delighted that God would do that to me. I'm like, God would bless me in that way. And he goes, you know, he probably blessed you, though, in spite of yourself, because I don't think you were supposed to go to school like that. And I was shocked, and I knew that he was right. That God let me go my own way, but in the midst of that, he was still showing that he cared for me. And you might have been going your own way, and God will still show that he cares for you, that he will intervene in your problems, that he will intervene in your life. Even if you, you're suffering the consequences of vengeance, as Samson is, it could be something else. Suffer the consequences of another sin. But God will be showing that he is intervening in our problems. Our problems. And he will also, he will also be hearing our petitions. You know, I look at verse 18 here. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. When he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En-Hakor. It is at Lehi to this day. See, notice what he does. He recognizes God had granted him in victory. He he praises him for it. He identifies himself as God's servant. And then he identifies his need, water, and that he was dying. He also identifies the situation that he's in, that he, he will fall into the hands of unbelievers, which is also a sign because he calls him the uncircumcised. He knew he shouldn't have married the Philistine woman. God hears, though, his petition and grants it. Now, this same guy that helped me, by the way, there's an addendum to this story, that I found out who he was, and he walks up to me. I was now leading worship at this church, and he walks up to me, and he goes, hello, Travis. And I said, and your name is? And I'd figured out who he was, and he goes, you know who I am. I said, yes, I do. He goes, what do you need from me? 
And I recognized, I, again, I was out of rent for the next month, and I was like, this guy has a direct line with God. I'm like, can you hear me now? <laughs> and I look at him and I said, I need rent. I'm sorry, I need rent. And he goes, give me a minute. So I go to the bathroom, I come back, and he hands me $1,500 in cash. I know. <laughs> and in my head, I'm going, who carries $1,500 in cash? And he had gone to help another woman buy a car, and this was the change. And he gave it over to me. And I said, what I really need is I appreciate this, but I need a job. And he goes, report to me tomorrow morning. So he gave me a job, and that ended up taking care of us during our time when we were in, in uh, kind of an exile, if you will, or the wilderness. But at the, at the end of that period, money was run out, the job was over, and I'm calling him, and he's not returning my phone calls. And I'm, I'm, I'm desperate. And so I tell the Lord, Lord, I don't know what to do. I'm talking with Tim Bedall, and he mentions you all, and end up coming out here. Uh, but in the midst of this, I have to get my uh, car tags renewed. And my tags, you have to go through the emissions test, right? What happens if your car has a check engine light on? You fail the emissions test, right? So I fail the emissions test. I only have so many days to do it. The repairs are going to cost me $900, and I don't have it. And he's the only guy that I know that can help me. And my stuff was in storage in Gray's Lake. So I'm praying, Lord, I need help. He's the only guy I know to help me, please. I've called him. He's unanswering the phone. And so I, I decided to make one desperate call. I'm driving there, and I call him, and he says, hey. And he answers the phone. He hadn't answered the, the phone in a couple months. And so I come in. Next thing I know, I tell him my situation. He goes, what do you want me to do for you? I'm like, buy me a house. No. I just said, I need my car fixed. And he goes, let's go to the garage. And he ended up paying not just the $900, but $2,000 to get my car fixed. And we went out to eat later. And he goes, you know, during that time when you were calling and I wasn't answering, I said yes. And he goes, God told me not to answer the fall. I'm like, who am I to doubt you? <laughs> but the last time that you called, God said to me, answer the phone and do whatever he says to do. I wish I had a prayer life like this. And he said, you know, during that time when you were, after you had cashed the check, you'd found out about the story. He said, God told me to speak to you sooner, and I didn't. I said, really? He goes, he told me to speak to you. I said, yeah, really? And I said, why didn't you? And he goes, well, I didn't feel like I was worthy. And I was like, I'm the unworthy one. But he said, you know, I was sitting in my car on Lake Cook Road in Deerfield, and I was at a stoplight, and God told me to talk to you. And I said, no, I'm not going to do it, Lord. He's righteous, I'm not. And he goes, I kid you not, I look over, and you're in the next car. He goes, you were in a Mercedes. I was. It was a friend of mine's old Mercedes that they had borrowed because my car was out. And he goes, I'll talk to him, Lord. See, God pays attention in the midst of that. He not only intervenes in our problems, he hears our petitions. Even when we've gone our own way, when we call out to him, he is ready and willing to answer. And he has done for me, he did it for Samson, he'll do it for you. He will hear our pray prayers, and then he will also be fulfilling his purpose. He will make sure that his purpose is fulfilled, and he still became a Hall of Famer. God still used him. He could have done so much more if he would have only walked the straight and narrow and done what God had wanted him to do. But yet God used him despite himself to fulfill his purpose. And he'll do the same with us if we follow him. Now I have a couple action points, and I know we've gone over our time. But here's some takeaways that I have for us. First thing, there's three of them. First of all, place your enemies in God's hands. Don't take matters into your own hands. 
Place your enemies in God's hands. Let him take care of them. Secondly, pray continuously. Pray continuously. God will answer when he calls out to you, when you call out to him in the midst of your situation. Pray continuously. And then lastly, make sure that you're putting God's agenda ahead of yours. yours. Put God's agenda ahead of yours. Fight fire, not with fire, with faith. Recalling and seeing that God will bring justice in his time, that he will deal with him, that he has shown forth his love for us, that he gave his son to die for us, that we can have life in him and be reconciled to him, and that he will, in his time, bring, his, bring our enemies. Those are really his enemies. Either he will save them or he will judge them. And we hopefully pray for their salvation, not their condemnation, because God's desire is that they too might be saved. That's our hope. That's our prayer. We fight fire, not with fire, but with faith. So God's name, I receive glory. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the example of Samson, but we are supremely thankful that you have shown forth your justice and your might and your power through the sacrifice of your Son, our Lord Jesus, on the cross. And Lord, for those here that are still continuing on in their sin, Lord, I pray that you might convict them of their sin, that you might show them their need of a Savior, that they can be forgiven, that their guilt and their shame can be removed. And even if they're suffering the consequences for the choices they've made, whether it's vengeance or something else that is they're dealing with, Lord, I pray that you show yourself to be the sovereign and hearing God who is there and is not silent. So Lord, please glorify yourself in our lives, just as you've done in Samson. Fulfill your purpose in us for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, well,